Imagine you're on a vast ocean liner, just heading out to sea, leaving harbor. There are people on it moving to a new life, people vacationing, people working. Many people, many different roles, many different tasks. There are people in high window suites on vacation. There are people at the mid-level, inside with no windows, travelers like yourself. And then in the lower decks, there are the workers' cabins and the poor travelers. As you travel on this journey, who are you listening to? Do you listen to the people in the lowest cabin complaining of damp rooms and leaks, saying the ship may be in trouble, asking to move up decks out of the dampness? Or do you listen to your neighbors who know only what you know? Perhaps you listen to the people in the nicer high rooms who say everything is fine and dry and I can see clearly. Perhaps you listen to the captain's soothing voice. But the captain is just one person, making a decision to try to keep their job, keep everybody calm, and complete this journey. Or perhaps you listen to the engineers, who have at least as much education as you, probably more, and the engineers, after two days out, have finally come to consensus and agreed that this ship is sinking. <laughs> and then you sit with the uncomfortable reality of inadequate lifeboat stock. And not everybody has paid for the lifeboats. The people in the higher rooms have paid for them. You have a 50-50 chance of getting one at your pay rate, and the people in the lower decks, no chance. That is, after all, why the captain says, those people are overreacting. Who would you have listened to? Would you have listened on the first day out to the people at the lower decks? Would you have waited for the engineers to come to consensus? Would you have stayed with that calming, soothing voice from the captain? Who do you pay attention to? Who owns your narrative? Last Tuesday, another alarming report came out from the world's scientists. This report, more scathing than the September United Nations report, if you've read that one. The September report talked about the large-scale, massive change that must happen, and it raised a gauntlet. The question for humanity, will you do more than you have ever imagined doing before? Will you do more than ever imagined to save the Earth? The November report came out in a journal, and it has more voices, 11,000 scientists signing on to this, and it's curt. <coughs> no, we haven't done enough. We haven't even kept the Paris Accord promises adequately. We're off course, and we are headed for disaster. We are picking up speed, they say, we are facing impending untold suffering. 
untold suffering. This is a climate emergency now, they say, because of our focus on inflating gross domestic products, our focus on increased meat production and air travel, among many other issues. They're creating warmer temperatures. There was another report that came out the next day. I don't know if you missed it in the wake of this other startling <coughs> report. Our children, this other report says in another journal, those alive today, those hoping for the new playground, the child we just dedicated, whose world we promised to protect, they will suffer. But people around the planet were already suffering desperately from climate catastrophes brought on by global warming. While dominant talk here may sound like a coming crisis, impending suffering, including the health crises of our children, did we not hear the warning when cyclones Idai and Kenneth devastated the people of Mozambique earlier this year, leaving them without homes and without food crops? Close to 1,000 dead and over 200,000 displaced. Are the people there just too far away? Were we not concerned about them? Did we not hear the children suffering in Puerto Rico who were devastated by Hurricane Maria? Could we not hear the warning even when the scientists confirmed that Maria's damage was the result of climate change? Will we listen to our friends fleeing the fires of the West Coast, I wonder? If we can't respond when our fellow Americans suffer in Puerto Rico, if we cannot respond when our fellow mainlanders suffer in California, who will we listen to? And what is it they have to say to us? Who? owns our narrative. These two warnings I spoke of, by the way, they're in journal articles. I know something about the pace of academic publishing. Does anybody in here know one word to describe the pace of academic publishing? Glacial. Glacial, slow. Good words, yes. If it was a crisis then, I'm sure it's a crisis now. Heaping on top of this, with the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Accord, we can all rightfully feel fear. We can even feel despair. What power do we have? But I ask you, who owns that narrative? The story that says you have no power? The report that came out November 5th lists ways for us to take action to turn things around. And that includes eating more plant-based foods and less meat, and putting more focus on reducing inequality and protecting ecosystems than on growing wealth. While things are bad, the report says, all is not lost. Countries, businesses have a lot to do. Widespread policy must change, but there are very important impacts for individual action too not only advocating for policy change, like we will with the Right Here, Right Now campaign, but individual choices. Are you waiting for the powerful to do the right thing? The narrative can sound like things you ought to do, but whose narrative is that? Are you waiting for the experts to say that salvation is possible? Getting the right powerful and authoritative or credentialed people to scare us all into action may create some change. It may motivate us. 
And yet it still is not going to address our structural issues with this ship. There are many roots to the environmental crisis, many roots. But we're talking about one today. The focus today is that we have learned to ignore the suffering of our fellow humans. Correction. We have learned to ignore the suffering of certain fellow humans. No matter our skin color or sex or class, we have all received a teaching. If you don't have the education, the teaching says, if you don't share the dominant cultural look, if you don't have economic power, then your problems and your assessments of the problem don't count. Our teachers are a trifecta of paternalism, individualism, and othering. Paternalism, it says, I know better. People with less wealth and education and my dominant culture just don't know what is really going on or what is really best for them or humanity. That's paternalism. I know what's best. Or individualism. It says that what is happening over there to those people doesn't have to stress me out. All my power and privilege and geographic location on this planet is going to keep me pretty safe. And then othering. Othering says that not only do I know better and feel safer, but I am better. It says that somehow if other people are suffering and I do not, then it must be because I am better. They are other. Each of these arms of the trifecta defies our faith. Each one of these is a sin. It's a sin against beloved community. A sin because they violate the very most basic ideals that we hold. Now, we Unitarian Universalists, we don't have creeds, we don't have doctrines, we have intellectual freedom and reason aplenty, but we do have an obligation to promote and affirm our principles. That's what we are. Paternalism defies the democratic process, one of our principles, a process whereby fundamentally all people come together to determine the good of a whole. All people should be able to contribute to the decision-making that impacts their lives. On the sinking ship, those with the lifeboats and those with no lifeboats and those weathering the early flooding must all be able to shape the decision to turn around and individualism. It ignores the interdependent web of existence. The fundamental wisdom that what happens to one happens to all, and one person's consumption must be accountable to all. On the ship, the weight of the cargo, cargo even the wealthy passengers' possessions, must be accountable to all. And othering. Othering undermines the inherent worth and dignity of every person. It is our first principle and the greatest affront. While we may not actively diminish the value of any group in our hearts, our faith calls us to promote and affirm inherent worth and dignity, not only to feel it. On the sinking ship, we cannot merely value the voices on the lower cabins. We must actively amplify them and affirm their truth. So this root of environmental crisis, ignoring certain people's suffering, is a root 
evil. I said evil. When I wrestle with evil, I often turn to the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German Christian theologian who was outspoken against the rise of the Nazis. Outspoken is putting it mildly. He conspired to assassinate Hitler and nearly succeeded, and then was imprisoned and later killed by the Nazis. One of Bonhoeffer's most famous collected works is a culmination called his Letters and Papers from Prison, collected in 1945. Bonhoeffer observed fellow prisoners, their torture, and the guards. In one letter about evil, he finds that it undoes the humanity of those who perpetrate it. Evil, he writes, often in a surprisingly short time, proves its own folly and defeats its own object. Deliberate transgression of the divine law in the supposed interests of worldly self-preservation has exactly the opposite effect, even on the guards. Bonhoeffer watched as evil robbed the guards of their humanity. He observed how lost they were, how sad, how desperate to reclaim a shred of their own humanity. For Bonhoeffer, violating basic human dignity, cruelty, it will ultimately destroy the self and any good goal of the one who does the evil. Evil undoes even its own self-interested act, he says. Evil undoes itself. But this is a very dangerous prospect when evil has been empowered so much that it has the potential to eat the planet, to render it unlivable, human life and all life. How can we expose the evils of the climate crisis so that evil can undo itself before it does us in? Who owns the narrative about the climate crisis? Many powerful people, yes. But we can each change our own narrative. If I am not paying attention to those most impacted now, evil will own my narrative. And I say, no more. I choose not to sit by while the evils of paternalism and individualism and othering eats the planet. These sinful ideas may be ingrained in me, they may creep into my thinking, but I am determined to root them out. Even if I cannot change the whole world or save it, I want a life, I deserve a life that proclaims my values. I deserve that creativity. I want the power to choose love. I want to choose actions, creative actions in my everyday life, voting, shopping, rallies, petitions, travel, banking. I don't want individualism. I want to demonstrate my affirmation of interdependence. I don't want paternalism. I want to welcome humility, to witness what other groups say is a crisis, and to learn about it and find solutions with them. I don't want othering. 
I choose to corral my biases, my stereotypes, my creeping senses of superiority whenever I notice them, to corral them and instead choose actions that affirm my equality, my equality with everyone. And even though I'm not a climate hero, and I have no anti-oppression superpowers, wish I did, I'm finding ways to live my life with more love in it, more of this creative power at every turn, and it brings me joy. I get joy. Here's one small example of the joy that I find in reclaiming my humanity in the face of evil. I went to the grocery store the other day, and the canvas bags were not in my trunk. And the store was out of paper bags. Now, I'm no saint, and I wasn't a perfect shopper. I did buy a package of goldfish snacks in the little individual wrapping so I wouldn't have to handle the gluten because I have celiac disease and my kids could have their snack. But although I failed, I also succeeded. Standing in line with a child behind me, I said, you know what, I'll go bagless. They were shocked. They went looking for little paper bags. Could you take the little bags? I'm fine. I'll do without the bags. It did a little joy for my heart to think about the care that action is as tiny, as insignificant, but the care in that action for that child, for my children, for their future. I'm not a climate hero, but paying attention to what I do, I have to tell you, it's liberating. And because I know racism and classism and sexism and ageism are wrapped up in this mess of a planetary crisis, I can choose joy in being anti-racist and anti-sexist and anti-classist too. You see, I know it's not a connection we're used to weaving, but follow this application of reason with me for a moment. The people suffering the most from the climate catastrophes right now are people with black and brown skin, poor people, and women and children. This is worldwide. So when we act in ways that perpetuate racist, sexist, classist hierarchies, we make it harder to listen to certain groups. And then we are fueling the environmental crisis. We are sinking our own ship, if you will. To stop oppression, I know my capacity, like your capacity, appears limited. But what evil narrative says that that justifies my inaction? Who says that justifies my inaction? I will not be undone by evil. I choose to take hold of my narrative listening to those facing crisis first. I choose to listen to the people in Mozambique and not only offer help, but to hear that we must all take action now to stop the next storm in Mozambique, to stop the next drought in India, to stop the next fire from overtaking our west coast. I'm placing myself in the story of healing the earth and her people, not as a savior, but as a person like any other, a person like you who can pay attention, give attention justly, 
and who can share in a creative narrative. Now that we can all hear this, this ship is sinking, whether you listen to people on the fringes from the beginning or whether you needed 11,000 scientists to tell you, what now? We could settle for a chance at a lifeboat, but talk about despair. I don't want that. Let's get to work. Let's work together to unload cargo and furnishings, relinquish precious comforts to lighten the load, helping one another repair breaches, and listening to the lower decks to turn around, turn this ship around. As a bonus, when we arrive at safety, we'll be proud of who we are when we get there. Here on the ship called Earth, let us be responsible for who gets our attention. And let us understand that the fact that we have ignored some people and groups is part of the problem. Let us share a narrative of humility and creativity. Let's take back this narrative about the crisis from paternalism, individualism, and othering. Let's have a narrative where we listen to those who are suffering at the margins of global decisions, where we get to share in a story where we are powerful and every inconvenient choice becomes an act of love, a powerful act of love that brings us joy. Let us share in a story where together, across this planet and across our differences, we repair the damage and turn this ship around. May it be so. Amen. <laughs>